All right, thank you guys so much, Jay and Michaela, for reading our passage this morning. Uh, We started a couple weeks ago a new series where we're looking at how things that, if you're a Christian, uh, normally are thought of as private spiritual disciplines actually have a huge impact on your neighbor. Uh, That the things that we normally look at, like prayer, fasting, uh, simplicity, as having really just a a benefit to us, actually have rich implications for the common good of the people who live around you. And so last week, we looked specifically at the topic of money and the practice of simplicity. And today, we're going to look at the topic of the mind and the practice of meditation. Uh, I'm sure that you are probably very familiar with what one of these are right now. Uh, Masks have become a part of our daily existence. Uh, My normal leaving the house routine that used to consist of wallet, keys, cell phone has now, without even thinking about it, also worked into the mix, taking one of these in some form, stuffing in my back pocket before I head out the door. Uh, Masks have become a part of our daily existence right now. And uh, despite the fact that, you know, I've worn one for months uh, constantly, I have still yet to figure out how to wear one of these without fogging up my glasses completely the second I put it on. So if you do know that, please love your pastor. Help me out. Tell me your secret because I desperately need to know it. Um, But when you look at one of these, uh, there's really not a whole lot to it. Uh, Some simple fabric, couple elastic bands, spot of glue. This one cost me $1.30 on Amazon to get. And yet for as simple as it is, it has divided one of the biggest countries in the world. Now, we know it's ultimately not about the masks. It's about what the mask represents, right? The values behind the arguments driving should we or shouldn't we wear them, where we should or shouldn't go, who we should or shouldn't be near. This pandemic that we're in right now has quickly become one of the most complex, confusing, polarizing topics in our community. And it's not the only one. Now, there's the even more important discussion about the legacy of racial injustice in America. And the two of these together has left us with this increasing suspicion over other people's viewpoints, uh, increasing isolation from people who don't think and talk like us, increasing anger, increasing frustration, increasing division, Add to the fact that most of us right now are locked inside, some of us with tiny toddlers running around screaming all day, and we're left to just hash these things out over Facebook. I think we can probably all agree right now, none of us are really in the best mental space to be weighing in on matters as deep and as weighty as the ones we have right now. You know, even if you don't have a particularly strong opinion on it, you still feel the impact of it, don't you? There's this tiredness to you. Last year, uh, a team of researchers uh, conducted a study of people's political views all across America. Interviewed about 30,000 people for this. And they categorized people's different political views into all these different groups. Here's the one that stuck out to me the most. What they called the exhausted 
majority. People who you know, don't fall on one of two extremes, don't uh, have really set entrenched views on something, and are simply worn out, tired by the polarizing, divisive talk that is filling our communities right now. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people, even here at Crosspoint in the last couple of months, who have essentially said something like this. I've got a big family gathering coming up, and I partially don't want to go. Not because I don't want to be with my family. No, I love my family. But I've got an aunt, I've got a dad, I've got an entire set of my family who we see things differently, and I don't want our time to turn into a debate. I just want to enjoy being with them. You know, the complicated conversations that that we have to weigh into right now on a pandemic that's going all across our globe, on a history of racial injustice, they have at minimum exhausted our mental, emotional, capacities. At worst, they've set neighbor against neighbor. And the question for us today is how will we heal? Well, Psalm 1 has the answer. Uh, Psalm 1 says there's two types of people in our community right now. One group is a blessing to all the other people around them. The second group adds no value, ultimately, to the lives of the people around them. The difference between the two? Meditation. The first group meditates on God's word day and night. The second group, who adds no value to the people around them, doesn't. Because what Psalm 1 is showing us is that ultimately what we think about privately shapes how we go and then act and speak publicly. Psalm 1 is saying, if you want to be the type of person that brings wisdom, healing to our community in these complex, confusing, polarizing conversations, you need to become someone who meditates on God's word. Um, Now, we're we're not going to look at all the verses in Psalm 1 this morning. What we're going to do instead is just glean from uh, a few specific verses what we can and let this psalm teach us three things. The promise of meditation, the practice of meditation, and the person of meditation. Three things. So, all right, ready? First, the promise of meditation. Psalm 1 promises at least three outcomes of meditating on God's word that I think are essential to anybody who who really wants to talk and think about complex, confusing, polarizing issues in in a way that actually brings healing to our community. First, stability. Uh, Psalm 1 says in verse 3 uh, that the person who meditates on God's word, this is how it describes this person. It says they're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither, and whatever they do prospers. Now, as uh, beautiful as that picture is, uh, our modern translations actually don't quite grasp 
as powerfully as it could the image here. The, the most literal translation would be that someone who meditates on God's word is like a tree manually transplanted next to a man-made irrigation channel. Now, I know it is uh, not nearly as poetic. Uh, it's a little clunky, but the image, I think, is actually more striking. The picture is this. A tree that is coming from a dry, dusty desert is getting replanted next to a channel of constantly flowing water. Meaning that through that, this tree develops deep roots, giving it a sense of stability in an always changing environment that it's in. That's the picture of the people who meditate on God's word. Those who don't, though, in verse 4, are described like chaff, that the wind blows away. You know, I, uh, I roast my own coffee at home, and one of my sons, my, my toddler son's favorite things to do is when we're done roasting the coffee, we take the roasted coffee beans, we go outside, and we dump them into this big metal colander, and then we turn on a fan, full blast, and poof, there is instantly this cloud of dry, lifeless chaff, the, the husk that's on the outer side of the coffee bean that just poof, goes everywhere in an instant. You know, I don't know about you, but um, I was just, just starting to really get my head around what's driving some of our responses that we were all having to the pandemic when it was coming out. And then George Floyd was killed. And within a day, I had an entirely different, even more important conversation, needing response, needing me to engage, needing me to dig in on it. And I could barely keep up. It, it, it felt like whiplash. I, I felt like thinking about pandemic to thinking about protest like that. And I couldn't even keep up. But Psalm 1 says, when we meditate on God's word, unlike being the chaff that gets blown around by all the conditions, we actually build this stability that comes from digging deep roots that are constantly drawing in God's word into our life so that we can remain constant despite the circumstances. So it promises stability. Second, meditation promises substance in your life. Uh, the difference between the tree and the chaff, between the person who meditates on God's word and the person who doesn't, is something that eventually can be felt by everybody else around you. The tree, it, it takes in water, but not like a hose that just merely takes it in and spits it out on the other side. No, the tree is, is living, organic. It draws the water in. It makes it a part of itself and produces by it something new and useful to everyone that comes in contact with it. The chaff is dead, lifeless, produces nothing of benefit, adds no value to the people around it. You see, there is a substance, a, a character fruit that is produced in you when you spend time meditating on God's word that in time will 
produce in you uh, a, something that is noticeable and nourishing to all the people around you. So that when you talk uh, with someone about the divisive issues that, that we have in our community right now that we're trying to figure out together, it, here's what they walk away thinking. Wow, Amy was thoughtful. She had deep convictions. You know, she, she had clearly spent time thinking about all this, but she also didn't give off the impression that she knows everything, has all the answers, has it all figured out. She could articulate herself simply so that we could actually have a conversation about it. She, she was generous, humble, and, and I left feeling heard. And, and with a slight invitation and a challenge to think more deeply, think more critically about my viewpoint, even, even if it didn't entirely agree with hers. That right there, that is, that is thinking and talking that changes us. That's thinking and talking for the common good. Here's the opposite. Here's the chaff. Someone who thinks, I read most of an article online in the Atlantic or the Drudge Report or whatever it is that you read, and I'm ready to fire off some instantly formed opinions on it. Or maybe you're thinking, no, Eric, I'm, I'm incredibly thoughtful. But I, I meditate all the time. I meditate day and night, but it's not on your Bible. It's on your news app. Can I be honest with you? About two weeks ago, I turned off my news app. Got to be too much for me. Uh, I normally, my normal posture, just kind of going through life is, you know, I, I kind of think I'm someone who thinks, you know, there, there are crazy people who say crazy things every day, and I'm not going to lose an ounce of sleep over it. But between the pandemic that we're in right now and the racial injustice and conversations that are needing to be happening around that right now, I found myself scrolling through my news app on my iPhone and eventually, after a while, saying to my wife, can, can, can you believe these idiots? Can you believe what that person said? Can you believe what this group said? Here's when I knew I had a real problem. I had an interaction with somebody who I'd never met before, who based on just some simple observations that I made of them, I stereotyped, sized them up, put them in one specific thought camp, and decided in the moment, I really don't want to engage with them right now in any sort of like conversation of substance. So I decided I'm just gonna politely end the conversation and move on. If the opposite of love is indifference, that was what was in my heart in that moment. You know, you, you might not say it out loud or write it on Facebook, but if you're harboring judgmental thoughts in your mind all day about people who think differently than you on things, do you really think for a second that is going to allow you to interact with them and talk with them in a way that's gracious and generous and helps people flourish and is for the common good? You see, the reality is what we need, though, isn't just turning off our Bible or turning off our news apps. Don't turn off your Bible app. Turning off our news apps, getting off Facebook. What we need is the substance of character that can only be produced by spending focused time meditating on God's Word. So meditation promises us 
stability, substance, third satisfaction. Verse 2 says that through meditation, over time, Psalm 1's incredibly realistic. This doesn't happen in a day. Over time, in season, there becomes this delight that you get in God's word. And isn't that what we most need right now? You know, the conversations that we're having right now on race, the pandemic, our economy, none of these are going to be solved in a day. And if you spend any amount of time engaging in them, it will eventually stir up in you confusion, anger, exhaustion. And what we need in the midst of that is a delight, a joy that we have despite the circumstances around us. And that's what Psalm 1 says you can get from meditating on God's word. A, a, A satisfaction that can sustain you through the complex and confusing and frustrating conversations we're having. In other words, what Psalm 1 is saying, what your neighbor most needs is you meditating on God's word. The promise of meditation, second, the practice. If that's what Psalm 1 promises, when we meditate on God's word, then then how do we do it? Well, I think we can actually see in verse 2 how when we hear the sound of meditation. Um, when, When I was a kid, we had a dog growing up named Ginger. She was a very social dog. And so if we were going to have people over for dinner, have a get-together over, we would, that day, buy Ginger a cow's bone from the butcher shop. And when everybody came over, we would give Ginger her bone in the next room, and, and she would love it. She would spend hours just sitting there nibbling and licking and sniffing and snorting and gnawing over this bone constantly. I mean, you can imagine how awkward it would make awkward silences when in the midst of not really knowing what to say, you hear the sweet, subtle, beautiful sounds of our dog in the next room slurping down bone marrow. Um, And it wasn't just for that night. For days, she would take it around with her. She would obsess over it constantly. That's what biblical meditation is. That's what Christian meditation is. The verb uh, in verse 2 there that that we have translated as meditate, it's the same verb that's used in Isaiah 31 to translate the noise that a lion makes when it's eating its prey. In Psalm 2, Specifically, the the most wooden translation that we could use for this verb would be mumbles. And we think of meditation as quiet, silent, by myself. No, the the, the picture actually is of someone who walks around looking slightly crazy, murmuring to themselves about the Bible all day. It's murmuring, mumbling, reading and thinking and reading and thinking on God's word over and over and over until it changes you. This is different how I think we often think of meditation. I think a lot of times we think of meditation uh, more in, through the lens of Buddhist spirituality, where a big focus in Buddhist spirituality is on emptiness, emptying your mind so you can commune with the deity. But, but 
Psalm 1 says meditation is the direct opposite of that. It's not emptying your mind. It's filling your mind. The, the tree in verse 3 draws in water constantly, fills itself with water, murmurs and mumbles and reads over it constantly day and day and day and day. But not like in Hindu spirituality where they have these mantras that they pray constantly over and over, repeating over and over to each other, thinking that in doing that, in repeating these lines constantly, that's what will give the power to their meditation. In fact, you know, the word mantra in a lot of Indian languages means magic. Now, Psalm 1 says, we murmur, we mumble, we read over and over and over constantly on God's word that's living and active, knowing ultimately it's not what we do, but it's what God's word does in us that that produces the powerful life change. So that's what meditation is. Murmuring, mumbling to yourself, reading and thinking and reading and thinking on God's word over and over and over again until it changes you. It's pretty vague, right? Not really something you're going to take and leave and do right now. I think we can get a little bit more specific, though. If we take an apprenticeship from a moment from a true master of meditation. Uh, Richard Baxter was an English Puritan, lived in the 1600s, wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest, where in it, he describes his three-step process to meditation, a, a meditation that, on God's word, changes you. All right, so here's the first step, what he calls consideration. This is essentially just your traditional Bible study. Long, thoughtful uh, study of God's word, asking the Holy Spirit, using you know, commentaries and study Bibles and all that stuff to, to figure out why this author wrote this, how what they wrote contributes to the bigger message of the Bible of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Baxter says you got to start there. You have to know what God's word is saying to you. But that's all pretty heady. He says it's all pretty cognitive. And so what do you need to do next is the second step, what he calls the monologue. This is essentially where you take God's word and you start preaching it to yourself. Where like the tree in verse three, you start to take the information of your Bible study into yourself and you start to make it a part of yourself where you begin to not only know the truth, but you taste it, where the intellectual becomes experienced, where the principles that you read about become real, where you start to engage the head and the heart together in life-changing ways. So how do you do that? Well, you take your Bible study and you start to ask yourself questions from what you learned in this focused time just studying God's word. Questions like this. If this is true, in this passage, what changes in my life? What difference could this make in my everyday reality? When I forget this truth, what suffers in my life, in my relationships around me? When I'm not living this out, what am I really afraid deep down to give up? And when you've started from that to, to begin to figure out the personal implications of this passage, then you start talking to yourself. 
you start talking to your soul, you start preaching the truths of God's word deep down into your heart. Here's some examples of what I mean. If you're fearful and anxious about death right now in the midst of a global pandemic, then in meditating on God's word, you start to preach the truth of it to yourself that though I will die and it won't be pleasant, I have a perfect resurrected body waiting for me in Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit in me right now as a guarantee that that future will be mine. If you're angered by the systemic racial injustice, by the broken judicial system in our country, then you preach to yourself that this anger, it's right to feel And even though I may never see meaningful change in my life, the most perfect criminal justice system known to man will come in the return and rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this world and his new creation. If if you're saddened that your family time has really just become debating and arguing and divisive about all the different issues right now that we've got because things in your fam- people in your family don't see things the way you do, then you preach to yourself that though it's right for me to feel the pain of that relational disconnection, Jesus Christ, whose own family of origin didn't understand him, has brought me into a new family at the cost of himself where I have a perfect heavenly father who loves to hear my thoughts. If you find yourself becoming right now more and more self-righteous about how safe you are compared to everyone else around you who doesn't wear a mask, then you preach to yourself, you grab your heart and you say, listen, self I have something so much better than mask righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Something that hopefully in a year's time won't be obsolete and that was given to me so that I would be more gracious, not less gracious than the people around me. And if you're sitting there thinking right now, I will never wear a mask. Don't you, don't you dare for a second tread on my personal freedom, then you grab your soul by the scruff of the neck and you say, I have a freedom that is so much better than mere constitutional freedom. The freedom of Christ from my sin bought with his own blood and given to me so that like him, I would be a blessing to the people around me. Do you see what you do in meditation? You take, you take the truths of God's word and you preach them into your heart. You grab your soul by the scruff of the neck and you preach to it until these things become real. You put flesh and blood on God's word. You preach the heart, you preach to your heart the gospel into your everyday reality. And you know, this is completely different than the way a lot of other religions do it. You know, in, in Islamic spirituality, there's this prayer called the dhikr which is this prayer that they recite uh, with these movements and sound and motion to it over and over and over again. And the whole point of it is to kind of bring you into this trance, this state where you forget about all the problems that are going on in your life. You forget about all the concerns that are happening right now. And you get to escape for a moment. Christian meditation saying, I've got something so much better for you than mere escape. I've got a place where you can take all the problems that you're experiencing in your life right now, bring them 
into the promises of God and preach those promises deep into your heart until those things become real and life-changing. And when you've done that, when you've studied God's word, when when you've grabbed your soul by the scruff of the neck and you've preached the gospel to it, then Baxter says, last, you pray. You stop preaching to yourself. You stop talking to yourself. And you start talking to God. You take what has now become real, the truths of God's word that have flesh and blood on them now. And you start to praise God. start to thank him. You start to confess sins. You start to lament the ways that even after all this meditation, he still feels different, still feels distant. And you ask him to know him in your life more and more. That's Christian meditation. It's not emptying yourself. It's not magic. It's not an escape. It's taking the truths of God's word and making them real. The practice, the promise, the practice, last, the person of meditation. Uh, If we stop right here, we will miss out on all that Christian meditation has to offer you. You see, there is a way of meditating on God's word that actually makes you worse for the people around you, not better for the people around you. The Pharisees in the New Testament were masters at meditation. To be a Pharisee, by age 15, you had to memorize the entire Old Testament. I mean, these people put everybody to shame. They, they read and studied God's word more than anybody else. And yet when you read through the gospels, Jesus continually dings them for how they don't love their neighbor And therefore, because of that, don't love God. They meditated on God's word, these Pharisees, day and night, and it actually made them worse for the common good, not better. And why? Why was that? Because when they meditated on God's word, they meditated on the principles of his word. And they missed the person of God's word. They meditated on the principles, on the law, on God's commands, on on what they and everybody else was supposed to do, but they never meditated on the person. They never meditated on the Messiah, on the promised Savior, on the Christ, on Jesus, who the whole Bible is about, who if you miss him, you miss everything. And like the Pharisees, today, American moralistic Christianity does the same thing. It meditates on just the principles. And it says, you want change? You want to know, you want to know what's wrong in our culture right now? Wrong in the midst of all the conversations that we've got going on right now? It's people don't have morals anymore. You want change in a society that's divided around things like a pandemic and racial protest and injustice? We've got principles. We've got the law. Obey it. That'll change our society. And yet, 
Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, God's law absolutely is something that we should see as a guide in how we live a life that's pleasing to God. But true Christian meditation, meditation that changes you and the people around you, ultimately focuses not at the end of the day on the principles, but on the person that they point to. St. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, describes Christian spirituality this way. He says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Everyone, Paul says, who by faith meditates, contemplates on the glory of God, are transformed into what they see. And what do they see? What is the glory of the Lord? Paul tells us in just a few verses later, it's Jesus. Paul says meditation, meditation that changes the world, ultimately focuses on Jesus, the person of the word. You see, Jesus is God's greatest word to us. Yeah, Hebrews 1 starts off by saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The apostle John starts off his gospel by saying, the word that is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's greatest word to us. He is the stream of running water that the flourishing tree in Psalm 1 draws in. The word of God to us to meditate on day and night. Who came not just to pronounce God's love to you, but to be God's love to you. He's God's word to us. And he's our perfect response for us. You know how we got into this uh, world of pandemics and uh, injustice and division? From not meditating on God's word. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, the first sin in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve was ultimately because they hadn't meditated on what God told them. And it's only continued with you and me today. You know, here's what it would look like. Here's what it would look like. Here's what our thoughts and words would look like if we meditated on God's word like we should. They'd be humble, generous, seasoned with grace, believing the best of the other person, focused on loving the other person, not merely proving a point. I mean, can you imagine for a second how that would change our community? None of us on our own, none of us can come even close to that. No, on our own, if you're like me, you're filled with self-righteousness, pride, and you look down your nose at people who think differently than you. But Jesus is the ideal man of Psalm 1. The tree 
planted by streams of running water, who came, he said, living not by bread alone, but by every word of God, who perfectly heard, meditated, and obeyed God's word for us, who is our perfect response to God's word, the perfect response we could never muster up on our own, and whose perfect response ultimately led him to the cross, where in that moment, he became you and me. He became the wicked of Psalm 1, as he was nailed to the cross, being cut off from the congregation of the righteous, not being able to stand himself in that moment, in the judgment, in love, dying for the ways that you and me fail to meditate on God's word, aren't renewed in our minds, but instead meditating on us in that moment, even with his absolute last breath. This is the person that ultimately is the focus of Christian meditation. Meditating on God's word should ultimately lead you to drinking in the water that is Christ, planting yourself in his undeserved kindness, saturating yourself in his unconditional grace, digging deep roots in his costly love, drawing in his never-ending mercy and resting in his perfect response to God's word for you, claiming by faith your title to Christ's fulfillment of Psalm 1's flourishing man for us, standing firm by grace in the strong rooted tree that is Christ dug down deep in him as he produces his fruit in you. This is what will change our community. You know, everybody's got an opinion. Moralistic Christianity says, you want change? We got principles. Obey them. Secular modern thought says basically the same thing. They say, you want change? We've got principles too. Not, not religious, Christian, Judeo-Christian ethics, nothing like that. No, enlightened intellectual thought education. You, you want change? We've got principles. Learn them. But Christianity, real Christianity, the gospel says, you want change? We've got a person a leader who uses his power for sacrifice, who dies for his enemies, and through his cross draws all people to himself. Meditate on him, and he will produce in you the fruit that our community and world needs in our complex, confusing, and polarizing discussions. Thanks be to Christ. Amen.